This morning, those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. It's good to meet you. Glad to be with you today. And I'm going to be sharing today from Genesis chapter 33. And uh, talking about one of my favorite subjects to talk about, which is the preemptive forgiveness of God. Something that God revealed to me in the past four or five years. That's really shaped everything else that I've learned in that time is that in Christ, God has already dealt with all sin. So regardless of what sin you committed, regardless of what sins have been committed against you, regardless of whether or not you've apologized for those sins, those sins have already been dealt with in Christ, and now it's just up to us to accept the forgiveness that's already been granted. Amen. I say um, His preemptive forgiveness, usually when we hear that word preemptive, we hear about a preemptive strike which is a military phrase, which means when I think somebody's going to curse me, I curse them in advance, just in case. God works exactly the opposite. When he feels like someone's going to curse him, he blesses them in advance to short-circuit their disobedience. This is the way that God deals with us. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to come before you today. I thank you for your forgiveness, which allows us to draw breath, which allows us to exist, to participate in life, and to be here today in this community of believers. We are believers, not just in you, but we are believers that you are for us, that everything that you have done, even bringing us through the painful places, has been done for our benefit, and so we give you Thanks, and we pray that you would increase our gratitude for your goodness to us. I pray today, God, as we open your word and we learn from uh, this story that many of us are familiar with of Jacob and Esau, that something new and experiential will come to us that will gain a new understanding that will actually change the way that we live our lives, that will even change the makeup of our bodies that will change the way that we hold ourselves, the way that we carry ourselves, the expression on our face, and the way that we speak to our neighbor, and the way that we treat our enemies. That we would have a fresh experience of your forgiveness for us, Father God, and uh, of your demand that we participate in this circle of forgiveness that you've instituted. We love you today. We pray that you would increase our love for you and our love for our neighbor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 33, if you have your Bibles. Y'all probably have them on your phones, don't you? See, the context I'm used to preaching in, um, in Seagrove, North Carolina, when I say if y'all have your Bibles, everybody whips out like a big family size King James Bible. Breaks it open. But if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 33, and just to kind of give you a little bit of the the backdrop of this story, this is the story of Jacob and Esau as they reunite. Jacob and Esau, we know, were twins. And Esau was the older by a few seconds. Jacob came out after him, and the scripture tells us that when Jacob came out, he was actually grasping onto Esau's heel. And that right there will tell us everything that we would need to know, this relationship, this contentious relationship between these two brothers. Their father, Isaac, was very wealthy, and the two of them battled their whole lives over the wealth of Isaac. 
Esau, because he was born first, even though only by a few seconds, technically he's still the older sibling, even though they're twins. So he has two things coming to him by virtue of being the oldest. Number one, he has the birthright, which means that when his father Isaac dies, he gets two-thirds of the material inheritance, and Jacob, or Jacob only gets one-third. So that's the birthright. We know what happens here. Jacob sort of swindles Esau out of his birthright. He deceives him into trading his entire birthright, two-thirds of the material inheritance coming from Isaac, for one single bowl of soup. So now Jacob has the birthright that was supposed to go to Esau, but Esau still has one more thing coming to him, and that is the blessing of Isaac. And in that day and age, the blessing of the father was actually seen to be more important and more essential than the birthright. Because the blessing of the father, in other words, before the father dies, he's going to lay his hands on his eldest son and he's going to put a blessing upon him. Now, these material resources, two-thirds of which go to the eldest by way of the birthright, they're going to run out at some point. But the belief in that day and age, and there's something to this belief really, was that the blessing never runs out. And so you're going to carry this blessing. This blessing is actually going to give you uh, financial provision, physical provision. It's going to give you health. It's going to give you longevity. It's going to give you progeny. It's going to give you all these things forever. It doesn't run out like the birthright does. So even though Esau was cheated out of his birthright, he still has the blessing coming to him, which was coveted more than the birthright. Jacob, however, is not content to just have cheated his brother out of the birthright. He wants the blessing also. And so we know the story that he dresses up like his brother. He covers himself in a goat skin. Apparently Esau was a, a hairy fellow. And also apparently didn't smell too good. Because it says when Isaac felt him, because Isaac couldn't see because he was so old, when he felt him, he said, yeah, this is my son. He smells like my son. Smelled like a goat. And so thinking that he's putting his blessing on Esau... He puts his blessing on Jacob instead, and the blessing in that day and age, again, they believed in blessing in a way that we don't now. The blessing was irrevocable. Even though he did it by accident, even though he put it on the wrong person, he tells Esau, I'm sorry, I can't take it back. I've already blessed your brother. So now Jacob, uh, this deceiver, the name Jacob means he who grasps the heel. If there's anybody in here named Jacob, I apologize for just giving you the facts. Now Jacob has swindled his brother out of his birthright and outright cheated him out of his blessing. Esau was willing to let the birthright go, but when he lost his blessing also, it says that he swore that the next time that he saw Jacob, that he would kill him. So Jacob is no longer safe. It's no longer safe for Jacob to be at home, and so Jacob has to flee for his life because now... Esau's after him and he wants to kill him. So Jacob flees uh, to the land of Laban, his uncle. And he lives there for 20 years with Laban. Okay? He marries Laban's two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And he has a bunch of kids with them. He works for Laban all these years. And Laban was blessed because of Jacob. Jacob is one of those people we can't really understand why God wanted to bless him, but God just put his blessing upon him. So everything that he touched prospered, and Laban prospered as a result of Jacob being there with him. But there came a time after 20 years where Jacob 
began to be homesick. Even though he had started a family here with Laban, this was not his home. Even though God had blessed him here, this was not his home. He wanted to return to the home of his father. And so he decides, even though there is this death warrant on him, he decides that he's going to risk it and he's going to go home. Now, Jacob knows this on his way home. He's got to pass through Edom, the land of Esau. So for 20 years, he's been avoiding this. He's been avoiding these two grievous sins that he committed and the consequences thereof. But now he's going to have to face Esau. And we're going to look in, the, in chapter 33, and I'm going to try to be brief. I just want to point out the, the forgiveness of Esau and then also the repentance of Jacob. And there's a reason that I'm putting them in that order. Genesis 33 says this, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maid servants. What he's doing is he's dividing his crew in the hopes that if Esau kills some of them, at least he won't kill everybody. He put the maid servants and their children in front. Leah and her children next. Remember that Leah was not his favorite wife. He puts her in front. <laughs> True. Rachel and Joseph, he puts in the back. Okay? He loved, it says he loved Rachel and didn't love Leah. He puts Rachel in the back and then his favorite son, this son Joseph that he's going to make this beautiful robe for, he puts him in the back too. Puts the rest of them up in the front. He himself, though, went on ahead. So at least he himself is up in front of everybody else. Okay? And he's got Esau coming at him, 400 men. He himself went on ahead and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered. They are the children that God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the very face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept this present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all that I need. Because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted the gift. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing among their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. Notice that these two brothers are now trying to see who cannot bless the other. Only God can do that. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in your eyes. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. This is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob arrived from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. 
and camped within the sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means mighty is the God of Israel. I want to look first at Esau's forgiveness. It's been 20 years now since Esau swore that he would kill Jacob the next time that he sees him. At some point during that 20 years, we don't know. If you read Genesis, it deals with Jacob during those 20 years. It does not deal with Esau. So we don't really know what Esau's life was like during that 20 years. But we do know this. At some point during those 20 years, okay, and this is very important. At some point during those 20 years, he forgave Jacob. He had forgiven Jacob before he ever saw him on the road. He had forgiven Jacob before Jacob ever offered his apology. In verse 4 it says this, As Jacob is prostrating himself seven times, in just a second we're going to deal with Jacob's repentance, his apology. But as Jacob is prostrating himself seven times, in the middle of it it says, But, but Esau ran to Jacob and embraced him. This indicates that Esau did not allow Jacob to finish his display of repentance because Esau was too eager to embrace him. He would not even allow Jacob to get through this ritual of repentance because he was so happy to see him, this brother that he had sworn to kill. Now he is so happy to see him that he can't just stand back and allow him to go through this ritual of repentance. He interrupts it and he grabs him around the neck and embraces him. This person that Jacob swore himself was going to kill him. He feared for his own life. Verse 9, it says this. Esau says to Jacob, I already have plenty, my brother. As, uh, Jacob sends all of this cattle ahead as a gift in the hopes that it might appease Esau and sort of uh, dampen the flame of his wrath. But Esau rejects all of that. I don't want any of that. I don't want any of your gifts. I don't want any of your presence. He says, I already have plenty, my brother. Shows this. We know that Jacob had been greatly blessed in these 20 years. And we've already said that everything that Jacob touched prospered. God blessed Jacob. But this verse tells us that Esau himself had been greatly blessed since he last saw Jacob. And Esau really has nothing either. The only thing that he has when we last see him is this rage that's keeping him alive towards his brother Jacob. But at some point in that 20 years, he too has been blessed. He's so wealthy, he doesn't have to accept this gift that Jacob is offering. Y'all with me? Okay. So here's the question. Was Esau blessed because he forgave Jacob? Or did he forgive Jacob because he was blessed? In other words, if we're cynical about it, we could say this. Well, the only reason that he really is forgiving Jacob is because he's already wealthy and he doesn't need Jacob's blessing or birthright anymore. Or did he forgive him at some point in that 20 years? And as a result of his forgiveness, as a result of his mercy, did God bless him? We don't know. But these two things we do know. He forgave Jacob and he was blessed. We don't know in which order, but we know that those two things exist in Esau. He has been blessed and he has forgiven his brother. 
there is a direct link between our willingness to forgive others and God's ability to bless us. There is a direct link between our willingness to forgive others and God's ability to bless us. And yes, I do mean God's ability because our disobedience, our refusal to forgive does limit God's ability. He is constantly trying to bless us. He is constantly trying to get his blessings through to us. But if we're not in position to receive his blessings, they don't benefit us. A lack of forgiveness shows a lack of humility. The way that I like to say it is this. It makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. That the blessings of God, we often think about the blessings of God coming out through his hands. But the blessings of God actually come out through his feet. They're constantly coming out. And they're there for anybody who wants to partake. The deal is, you've got to get real low to receive them. And if you're not humble, you're going to suffer. Not because God's not blessing you, but because you're out of position. And you can't receive his blessings. God can't bless you if you're not humble because you're up too high and his blessings are coming out down here. You're just missing them. Our willingness to forgive others and God's ability to bless us are directly connected. When we close our hearts to others, we shut ourselves off from God. Um, All of us have had this experience where somebody sins against us. And out of our natural human reaction, it may have been something small, it may have been something big, our natural human reaction is to slam the door in their face. And we don't mean to, but when we slam the door in their face, we're also slamming the door in God's face. The good news is, they can't get in. The bad news is, God can't get in either. When we close our hearts to others, we shut ourselves off from God. The end result is that our spirit dries up and our body breaks down. Unforgiveness manifests itself in our bodies. It's a spiritual problem that manifests itself in our bodies. Um, I like to call it the circle of forgiveness. Participating in the circle of forgiveness means this, that you are willing, when you are at fault, to say, I'm sorry. And when somebody else is at fault, you're willing to say, I forgive you. If you're not willing to say, I'm sorry, if you're not willing to say, I forgive you, then you have removed yourself from the circle of forgiveness. And the result of that is a slow but certain death. Amen. It starts in your spirit and then it manifests in your body. Unforgiveness will cause your body to break down. Can I tell you all a story? Hopefully you won't think less of me when I tell you this story. Um, when I was in fifth grade at Carborough Elementary School, about a mile and a half, two miles from here, Carborough Cubs, <laughs> it was report card day. Now, some of y'all, when y'all were growing up, you looked forward to report card day. It was a happy occasion in your home. But report card day to me was not a happy occasion. It was a day of dread. Me too. Glad it wasn't just me. (laughs) What made it so bad is this. You know, when uh, my kids now, when they bring home their report card, you got to have your parents sign the report card. Mm -hmm. It's not bad enough that you have to see it. Now they have to see it too. And you have to bring back the signed report card. And the bad part for me was my mom worked in the school system, so I couldn't say, 
today was not report card day. She knew good and well when report card day was. So when I was in the fifth grade, I got a report card. And I'll just say this about myself in the fifth grade. I was not what you would call an exemplary student. I was barely what you would call a student. <laughs> so when I got the report card, there were some, uh, there were some bad letters on that report card. And when I got home from school that day, my mom and dad said, uh, son, where's your report card? We need to sign it so we can send it back. And I thought of this lie on the bus uh, coming home from school. It seemed like a good lie at the time. Now I look back at it and see it was not believable at all. What I told them was, something went wrong with the printer. <laughs> and some kids got their report cards, and some of us did not get their report cards, but they said we'll get them tomorrow. I don't know what I was thinking. Really only bought myself a day. <laughs> and they said, uh, okay. I know they didn't believe me, but they let me slide that day. Next day I come home again. All right, son, where's your report card? Printer is still not working for some reason at the school. Still waiting on my report card to get printed off. So this goes on for two or three days. Two or three days go by, and I start thinking to myself, my report card is in my book bag. I've taken it, and I've stuffed it out of my shame. I've stuffed it at the very bottom of my book bag underneath all of my books. And so I'm thinking to myself, at some point, my mom or my dad are going to go through my book bag, and they're going to find the report card, and they're going to know that I lied to them. So now I'm not so much stressed out about the report card, y'all. I'm stressed out about the lie. And so what do you do when you start stressing out about a lie? You tell another lie. And so I tell them, uh, I tell them, I say, hey, uh, don't go on my book bag. <laughs> because uh, this girl at school, she wrote me a love note. And I hid the love note in my book bag, and out of respect for my privacy, I would appreciate it if you did not search through my book bag. You know? I just told the police, the body is not buried in my backyard. Don't look like <laughs> So, that bought me maybe one more day. Now it's been like five days. And y'all, what I've noticed is this. At the very beginning, I was praying that they would not find out about my report card. Five days later, I was praying that they would find out about my report card. Because what had taken place is that I had become physically sick. I was now unable to eat. I was unable to sleep because of the stress of not saying, oh, I'm sorry. Because of the stress of removing myself from the circle of forgiveness. I remember being at a, uh, at a church event one night and I came home and everything in my book bag was dumped out. There was no love note, by the way. Everything was dumped out and there was my report card. It was pulled out and it was signed. And uh, I think I got in a little bit of trouble. I might have had my... Nintendo taken away for a couple of days. Might have been an Atari back then, 1988, I'm not sure. But either way, there was a little bit of a punishment, but it was nowhere near as bad as the suffering that I mounted up upon myself by removing myself from the circle of forgiveness. When we refuse to say, I'm sorry, or when we refuse to say, I forgive you, we've stepped out of the circle of forgiveness, and only within the circle of forgiveness is there life. Amen. So outside the circle of forgiveness, there is nothing but death. The death may be fast or it may be slow, but either way, it's death. We have to be willing to step in to that circle of forgiveness. And at some point, at some point, Esau realized this before Jacob even apologized to him. He extended his forgiveness to him, which teaches us this. 
A person who sinned against you does not have to say they are sorry in order for you to extend your forgiveness to them. Amen. It's their business to say I'm sorry. It's your business to say I forgive you. It doesn't matter which order they come in. Mm-hmm. Jesus himself, when he was on the cross, the very people who were chanting for his death, he extended forgiveness to them. There one of them <coughs> said they were sorry. But he extended his forgiveness to them. So Esau understood this. Now let's look at Jacob's repentance. Um, I won't read it again, but in verses 3 through 9, it goes through this ritual of Jacob. It says that he bowed down seven times. As soon as he sees Esau coming his way, it says he prostrated himself. That's what that word means. He prostrated himself. He didn't just stand up and bow. He got down on the ground, put his face to the ground seven times. Seven is the number of completion in Scripture. There were seven days of creation. There's a story about Elisha the prophet where there's a man named Naaman who was a commander in the Syrian army. He's struck with leprosy. He comes to Israel, his rival country. He goes to Elisha the prophet for healing. And Elisha tells him to go to the Jordan River and do what? Dip down seven times. And it wasn't until he dipped down the seventh and final time that he came up. And it says that his skin was as smooth as that of a newborn baby. So he had to go down seven times. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of God. And so it's showing how complete and without reservation Jacob's repentance was. He didn't just prostrate himself before the one that he sinned against. He prostrated himself seven times. His repentance is complete and without reservation. But remember that Jacob was forgiven before he repented. This is what God has shown me about repentance, y'all. Repentance is absolutely key because it puts us in position to receive the forgiveness of God. Repentance does not cause God to forgive us. He has already forgiven us. Repentance causes us to become receptive to the forgiveness that has already been given. It's not about convincing God to forgive us. It's not about convincing Him to open His hand in forgiveness because His hand is always open. It's about us opening our heart to what He has already extended to us. It's about putting ourselves in a position where we can receive what He's already granted. Until we repent. This is why it's so key that we repent. Both John the Baptist and Jesus came preaching this message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Until we repent, we will suffer. Not because we haven't been forgiven, but because we have yet to receive his forgiveness. This story of Jacob and Esau reminds me of a story in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells about the prodigal or the wasteful son. The son went off and took his share of the inheritance. He spent it on wine, women, and song. He wronged his father. He shamed his father. And yet when he comes home, he has this, uh, this whole apology that he's been rehearsing the whole way. Maybe, 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 even though I've done this thing, I basically disown my father. By taking your father's inheritance before he dies, you're basically saying to him, your money is worth more to me than your life. 
So he's saying, even though I've shamed my father, even though I've publicly ridiculed my father and taken my share of the inheritance and completely wasted it, even though I've done all this, maybe if I apologize just right, maybe, just maybe, he'll take me back as a servant because I know he'll never take me back as a son. He's got this whole apology worked out, and it's a really good one, y'all. He had a really good apology, and the tragedy is he didn't even get through his apology because it says while he was still a long way off, the father runs to meet him and embraces him. The son still is trying to apologize, and the father just keeps interrupting him and saying, no, we have a feast prepared for you. Repentance is not about apology. Repentance is about returning. In fact, the word repent means return. It's the same word. Neither Jacob nor the prodigal son got to finish with their apology. They were forgiven before they apologized. And the reason that they were forgiven is because they were both on their way home. You think about it. The prodigal son, the the father had already forgiven him The father is sitting there on the porch waiting for his son to come home. The forgiveness was already there, but while the son is living in a rebellion in the pigsty, he doesn't know it, so the forgiveness is not benefiting him. So in order for him to experience that forgiveness, it does no good for him to stay there and say he's sorry. All he's got to do is come home because the forgiveness is already there. Are y'all with me? Yes. Same deal for Jacob. He doesn't know. Y'all, it could have been, okay, they were separated for 20 years. It could have been 15 years ago that Esau forgave them. But he continued to suffer for 15 more years, or however many years it was, because he had not come home yet. And until he comes home, he doesn't know that Esau has forgiven him. So Esau's forgiveness has already been extended. But until it's received by Jacob, it doesn't benefit him any. God does not want an apology from you. Your apology does no good. Now, if you want to think of a good apology, you can, but I guarantee you this, when you come to God, He won't let you finish. He'll be just like Esau. He'll be just like the father with the prodigal son. He'll just be so happy to see you that He can't just stand there and listen to you apologize. All He wants you to do is come back. Repentance is not about apology. Repentance is about returning. All he wants you to do is take one step toward home and he will rush to meet you with open arms. What is it about? It's about re-entering the circle of forgiveness. It's about saying you're sorry. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against someone else. Just a simple I'm sorry. A humble attitude. True brokenness and contrition. Psalm 51 type repentance. Just brokenness. And he'll receive you. If someone has sinned against you, then you're willing to extend that forgiveness to them. And understand this. With that circle of forgiveness, you can't participate in just half of it. You can't. See, some of us just want to participate in this part where we're receiving forgiveness from God. But there's the other part of it too where now he requires us what God wants us to do is He wants to He wants to uh, fill us up with His forgiveness, thereby making us vessels of forgiveness ourselves. 
Because he wants us, we are living in a world that is dying of self-hatred. And so God is desperate for people who are willing to be channels of forgiveness. So if you're not willing to be an open channel on both ends, then this end gets closed off too. Um, If somebody sins against me, and I'm demanding that they pay me back. Okay, this is a basic level uh, lesson in forgiveness. Y'all still with me? Y'all feel free to get up and walk out if you want. Okay. If somebody sins against me and I demand that they pay me back, to forgive means to let go. So in other words, if I'm not forgiving them, that means I'm not letting go. So I'm holding on to them like this. Okay? I'm demanding repayment. God, meanwhile, is over on this side. He's offering forgiveness, but I can't receive it because my hands are tied up. I don't have any hands to catch it. Because my hands are tied up over here demanding repayment from this person. So the only way to participate in the circle of forgiveness is with open hands on both sides. That we receive it freely and that we give it freely. This is what God requires of us. I hope this is clear, y'all. We are... um, we are in a moment, I kind of flew through all that, because we are in a moment going to participate in uh, Holy Communion, which is about re-entering that circle of forgiveness. And here's what I want to say about this, okay? Um, I talked about this before, and I mentioned it, God's preemptive grace, His preemptive forgiveness. There's a place in Revelation chapter 13 where it talks about Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain from the very foundation of the world. Slain from the very foundation of the world, which tells us this, that God, when he spoke the universe into existence, before he ever created man and before man ever sinned against him, God had already made provision for sin. If you really read the Genesis account, Genesis 1 and 2, the whole gospel is in there. Because God spent himself so much in the work of creation, atonement and creation are all tied up together. He spent himself while he's creating us, while he's creating the universe for us and for his glory. He is pouring himself into this work. Making provision for any mistake that we might make. So much so that at the end of it, he had to take a day off. Isn't it interesting that God rested on the seventh day. And Jesus was in the tomb on the seventh day. What Jesus does is this. Okay, so everything in the atonement was already there at creation. Atonement and creation are all tied up together. God had already made provision for sin because the Lamb of God was slain from the very foundation of the world. What Jesus does when he lays down his life on Friday and then is resurrected from the dead on Sunday, what is that? That is a dramatic reenactment of what God had already accomplished on our behalf. God was not caught by surprise when you sinned against him. Before you ever thought about sinning against him, God had already made provision for your sin. Behold the Lamb of God, slain from the very foundation of the world, slain for the very sins of the world, means that every sin that has ever been committed has already been provided for. And it's not about God punishing His Son for our sins because God does not visit punishment 
upon the righteous for the sins of the unrighteous. He doesn't do that. It's about God Himself and the Incarnation taking the hit for us. Allowing Himself to be broken so that we might have life. So when we come forward in just a moment to participate in communion, we have to do it with the proper mindset. We understand that as God allowed Himself to be broken, what He's calling for from us is a willingness to participate. God extends His forgiveness for the sins of all the world so that everyone might come home and experience His provision, but He wants to use us in the process. Do not partake of the body or the blood of Christ if you are not willing to be a channel of forgiveness in this broken world. If you are not willing to participate on both sides, we have no business trying to receive forgiveness because we have no intention of giving. And we also understand that we can only be forgiven to the extent that we forgive those who have sinned against us. His body and his blood, him laying his life down gives us an example to follow. His willingness to forgive those who sinned against him, his willingness to absolve his enemies, to bless those who cursed him, gives us an example to follow. And then, by way of his Holy Spirit, he gives us the power to follow that example. Why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he give up his body for us? To put it simply, he gave up his one body so that he might have access to all of our lives. As long as he was here in earthly form, he could do a lot of stuff, and it was really amazing. But once he laid his life down, now his spirit is released abroad through creation, and now he has access to a whole bunch of bodies. So now he can do even more. But we've got to be willing vessels and willing channels. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for your sacrifice. We know that your sacrifice came... Not because we sinned against you, Father God, but before we even thought about sinning against you, you'd already made this sacrifice for us because you knew that we might and you'd already made provision for us. And we give you thanks for that, that you were not caught by surprise. Even though our sin hurts you, it does not surprise you that you make provision. Father, I pray that you will help us right now. If there's any of us in here, Father, who have stepped out of that circle of forgiveness, there may have been something that that we've done to someone else or a sin that we've committed against you and we refuse to say, I'm sorry, Lord Jesus. It's so simple just to come to you in humility without even saying a word, just to humble ourselves before you. To receive this forgiveness, Father God. We take pleasure today in the knowledge that you do not desire to shame any one of us, but to forgive us. Father, if there's been someone who has sinned against us that we have uh, refused to extend forgiveness to that person. I pray that you'll give us the strength by way of your Holy Spirit to do that and to understand that you're not asking us to forgive them. You're asking us to let you forgive them through us. Make us open channels for your Holy Spirit today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.